All right. Well, today we're going to finish up our discussion of infant baptism and switch into, Lord willing, the Lord's Supper uh, as we continue on in this series. Look at the Lord's Supper. We'll end with deacons and potentially, I'm not sure if I'm going to do this now or in another section, something about the mission of the church. It's a, it's a, big, it's a big deal right now. What exactly is the mission of the church? How does that relate to justice and mercy versus discipleship and gospel. Um, but certainly uh, we're coming to the end of our series. But let's, uh, so let's pray. And then I'm going to give a kind of a recap of the things that we've been talking about, kind of zoom out to, to close us out here, make, make a couple final points, and they'll move on to the Lord's Supper. But first, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help. Um, God, we are thankful to, again, be able to discuss these things, hopefully with a spirit of humility, we pray that you would give us wisdom and clarity, that um, you know, we would hold truths that are very clear um, and that are central, that we would hold them firmly. And things that are not quite as clear, that we would have a proportionate um, grasp on those things, that we'd be willing to come to the table of conversation, uh, that we'd be willing to learn. So we pray that you would shape us even just one more tiny bit in this uh, this hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I uh, want to zoom out. We have looked at a lot of trees here, and I, and, and I, uh, I knew that doing this, would I would probably lose some people into the, oh my goodness, you're killing me here with the kind of this deep dive. Uh, but I do want to zoom out and just say, just kind of like, what, what, what should you remember if you forget everything? We have been critiquing the Reformed Pado-Baptistic position. We've looked at a lot of texts, a lot of arguments, and it's easy when you do this to go like, well, where, where are we again? Like, what, are, what exactly are we doing? So let me just say that the primary case for the Baptist position on baptism is not fundamentally based on examples of believers' baptism in the New Testament or the absence of infants being baptized. That's kind of your typical view from the Pew Baptist, I would say. So Southern Baptist view from the pew. That's what the Baptist position is. The reason we baptize believers is because believers are baptized in the New Testament and there's no examples of infants. Okay? That's certainly part of a cumulative case. That's what we would expect if infant baptism was false. But we, don't, we also don't ever see an example of women taking the Lord's Supper or them being commanded to do so. Uh, but that certainly doesn't, we wouldn't conclude from that just because there's no examples of that, that such a practice was not ongoing. And so similarly, just because there's something that is not happening doesn't necessarily mean uh, that we don't, excuse me, just because we don't see it happening in Scripture doesn't necessarily mean uh, it wasn't happening. So what is the Baptist, the, the strong Baptist position based on? It is based on an understanding of the new covenant as a covenant in which everyone knows God savingly. The new covenant of Jeremiah 31 has been realized, and it is a covenant in which everyone knows God savingly. Everyone in the new covenant is a Christian, and that has been fully inaugurated by Jesus Christ, by what he has done. And so in following the biblical pattern of only applying the covenant sign to covenant members, and given that the way you become a covenant member is repenting and believing, the Baptist position is that, that believers should receive the sign because the new covenant is only for believers. That is the idea. 
Um, and as a pushback to the idea that the new covenant is a pure covenant now, we did look at Dr. Richard Pratt's objection, uh, suggestion, where he says that the new covenant comes in an already not yet manner, like the kingdom, um, but it's not clear how much sense that makes. It's not clear how the kingdom could come at all if the covenant upon which it is founded wasn't there, okay? It's difficult to understand how if sin had not been totally forgiven and Christ was not already able to save through the other most and the high priest and the law had not been abolished in the sense that the Bible speaks of it because of the fulfillment of Christ, um, how, the new, how the kingdom could come at all, okay? When Pratt is asked why he thinks the pure aspect of the covenant is not yet, why is that one of the not yet elements? Remember, does anyone remember what he says? When he's trying to dice up the new covenant and say, which ones are the already elements and which ones are the not yet elements? Does anyone remember what he says? He says, well, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you why the, the, the pure aspect is in part of the not yet. is because of all these passages in like Book of Hebrews where it shows people falling out of the covenant. So you're going to, so, so this is where it, it comes down to it. I mean, he just straightforwardly thinks. So when you look at Hebrews 10, 29, 30, where, you know, how much uh, more severe uh, with the treatment of him who has trampled the blood of the covenant, uh, how much more severely will he be treated than person who died on, on the, under the law of Moses? In Hebrews 10, 29, 30, the so-called warning passages in the books of, book of Hebrews, Hebrews 6 would be an example. Um, and then the other warning passages in Scripture, and he just says, listen, clearly these are people who are in the covenant and they fall away. Therefore, you can fall away from the covenant. So the pure part of it is not yet. That's his argument. So you need to go back, and if you're engaging in some of those things, you need to go back and look at how we addressed those passages uh, that purport to demonstrate that, that, the, that people can, in fact, fall out of the, of the covenant. Again, Hebrews 10, 29, 30 is, the, is by far the most important one because it's the only one that actually mentions covenant at all. So the Pado-Baptist view is motivated by a strong sense of continuity between the Old and New Covenants in light of the covenant of grace, this big supra-covenant that goes over it all, and more particularly in light of Genesis 17, where God covenants with Abraham, and he says he's going to bless you and your offspring, and he's, he gives the sign to Abraham and his offspring. God includes parents and their children in the promises. And then according to our uh, Reformed Pado-Baptistic friends, Acts 2.39 reconfirms that this is the case. The promises for you and for your children. We addressed that text. Um, and as we've looked at some of these things, we've, we've sought to criticize some interpretations that suggest that children are members of the new covenant by physical birth. By physical birth, by talking about the four senses in which the word seed is used in Scripture. Abraham's seed, all of his physical descendants, including Ishmael, including Esau, and the sons of Keturah, who are not part of the promise. Then the special line of promise, who are also considered Abraham's seed in a different sense. And then you have Galatians 3.16, the seed to whom the promise referred, that's Christ. And then Galatians 3.29, that those who are in Christ are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so when we look at an infant born to... Christian parents who is presumably being baptized on this on the basis of this promise to Abraham, you and your seed, you and your offspring, we can rightly ask in what sense of seed are we talking about? As our Presbyter is the as the children of our Presbyterian friends uh, descendants of Abraham, generally. No, they are not. 
Are they descendants of the special line, the second kind of seed? Are they Jewish? No, they are not. Okay, are they Christ? No, they are not. Uh, are they in Christ? That's why you're baptizing. No, they are not. So it, you start to wonder why, what, how is it actually, can, how, what, what sense are we actually baptizing people on this Abrahamic genealogical principle? It seems like a theology stuck in transition where physical, uh, where spirit, oh, excuse me, spiritual offspring can physically create someone who, do, who, who uh, should receive the covenant sign. It, it seems to be have kind of one foot in the Old Testament, one foot in the New, and it's just, it, it, uh, it is a theology stuck in transition, it seems to me. Um, then finally, we looked at the idea that baptism replaces circumcision. Oh, by the way, I, I did a parody argument that I got a little bit of pushback on, which is, which is fine. I, like, I enjoy the pushback. I, the, the, the parody is just to show that just because A implies you know, X and B implies X. It doesn't mean A and B are identical. So here's the, I retooled it for, for you all. Of course, remember the, 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 the argument from the Pado-Baptist friends is circumcision uh, signified, or circumcision represented um, spiritual circumcision of heart. Baptism represents uh, circumcision of the heart. Therefore, circumcision and baptism are identical in function. So here's my retooled parody. Um, my Random McNally. Who, who remember the map books? Anyone remember the big map books you put up? On, right? Okay. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was a source of a lot of jokes and a lot of anger in uh, our family trips. Hold it still. Why is there a crease through? Anyways. Um, but so how about so, so this? Uh, my map book uh, used to represent the geography and roads around me. Now my GPS represents the geography and roads around me. So my map book and my GPS are identical um, in function. Does, it, does, that, does that sound plausible to anybody? So does one replace the other? In one sense, yes. In one sense, yes. Is a GPS and a map book identical in function? Who says that a GPS's function is a little bit different? It does a little bit more than a map book, right? Yeah. So a GPS actually tells you where to go. A map, you figure out where to go. A GPS has a lot of a lot more capabilities. It's able to direct you and guide you, whereas a map, uh, it, it, it lays things out, but you've got to figure that out yourself. And so if you think that a map and a GPS tool are not identical, which I think they're certainly not, despite obvious overlap, um, I think you see the difference here. That just because two things signify the same thing uh, doesn't, doesn't mean that they are identical in meaning and function. And so similarly, while there is obviously overlap between circumcision and baptism, they just aren't identical. Circumcision pointed to a need to have a circumcised heart, among other things. Baptism represents that one has a circumcised heart. Both of those can be say to represent spiritual circumcision, but it's not the same thing. Okay, final thoughts here as we wrap this up. That was kind of my recap. That was kind of my recap. Any questions about the recap that I just gave? I recapped about five weeks there in about five minutes. Maybe more than that. Okay. What about, so I'm not just going to throw some final parting like, Friendly, friendly fire. 
some final parting shots here. Why is it that most of our, not all, certainly not all, but why is it that most of our Presbyterian friends do not bring their infants to the covenant meal if they are members of the covenant? The covenant meal, the Lord's Supper, is for people who are part of the new covenant. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. The whole reason these children are baptized is because they are part of the what? The new covenant. So why don't they get the covenant meal? Now, some people have said, that's a great point. And so we're going to practice paedo communion. Okay? And that is a, that's in practice among uh, Reformed paedo Baptists that I uh, think is gaining steam. Okay? But many people, and I think rightly, uh, and, and uh, are not doing it. So it's an interesting little fight to see as a Baptist who looks over the fence to, for, for kind of the Reformed paedo Baptist people going back and forth saying, oh, why? obviously we should bring our kids to the covenant meal. They're members of the covenant. And then kind of the more PCA, uh, more, con- uh, I don't know they're more conservative, but the, more of the, the, the Presbyterian the mainstream, uh, not mainline, but mainstream, that kind of most of us would be familiar with, say, well, no, the, 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 there's a, the Lord's Supper is different. The Lord's Supper is different. It represents something different, and therefore... They can't have it. There, there are certainly replies. I'm not even going to get into it. I'm not even going to get into it. But I'll just say this is like a pebble in the shoe of a lot of for a lot of our Presbyterian friends. They had they have to tell some story why, in virtue of being in the covenant, their children can receive the sign of the covenant, but not have the meal of the covenant. It seems to me you either have both or you can't have either. That's what it seems to me. Okay. Um, what about the halfway covenant? So I'm just going to summarize this very briefly. Halfway Covenant is 1657. It happened in New England. Here's what, here's what happened. You had parents who were Christian parents. They, uh, they, they uh, had kids, okay? They had children who were baptized, uh, who grew up in the church, but never professed Christ. Never necessarily, they were nice folks. They were nice folks, but they never repented and believed the gospel. And then they had kids. And they had kids. And the grandparents of those kids wanted their kids, wanted their grandchildren baptized. So what do you do now? What do you do? These are people who are in the new... So the parents have been born into the new covenant. But then they, but they, they've never embraced the faith. Do their kids get to get the sign of the covenant? And if you were in Abraham's, if you were doing Genesis, if you're kind of talking about the Genesis 17 model, yeah. But it caused a big, it caused a big problem. And so they adopted the halfway covenant where people could be, uh, where, where, where infant children could be baptized, even if their parents were not, uh, were not Christians, which you might think is a pretty bad detour from the Abrahamic genealogical principle. But it does make, in one sense, it does make sense, though. It does make sense, because if you're trying to be continuous with the Old Testament and say that it doesn't require faith, you know, you could be a, a morally, at least outwardly moral Israelite and have kids who are outwardly moral, but they don't really fear Yahweh, and everyone still gets the sign of the covenant. Okay? Everyone, meaning the, the baby boys, get the sign of the covenant. So it seems to me an odd departure Seems to me an odd departure. Uh, in fact, you know what? I don't even, I'm not. I'm not going to read that. 
That You can go look a little bit more about that. I don't want to continue on. I was going to read an excerpt about the uh, halfway covenant and the problems that it caused, but uh, it just is, it's just another one of these. So these two, these two things I'm pointing out, the covenant meal and the halfway covenant, they're practical inconsistencies. It, it's pointing out, if you're going to say this, why do, you, why do you practice it like this then? If you're going to say that, that, that believers, if, 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 um, if children of believers can get the sign, why, can, why cannot grandchildren of believers get the sign? Because in Israel, they would have. It's pointing out some of these inconsistencies. Okay, finally here, what's the fundamental distinction between Reformed Paedo-Baptists, Reformed Baptists, and Dispensationalists? I would suggest um, most, most of the time when you hear this, I would say it's an oversimplification. I think this is an accurate, I think this is genuinely accurate, the fundamental difference here. I think it can be boiled down to differences in understanding the fulfillment of promises and typology across the covenant and resulting continuities or discontinuities. So, for example, the Reformed Paedo-Baptists appeal to Genesis 17 to justify this abiding nature of the genealogical principle for covenant inclusion. Parents and their children, children get the sign, but they maintain that the land of Canaan contained in the same promise, has found fulfillment now and is no longer part of the equation. Okay? The peace, the, 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 the peace of Palestine is not, is not part of it anymore. Dispensationalists, on the other hand, appeal to Genesis 17 to justify the abiding land promise. It was given to Abraham as a promise. And in the very same promise... The genealogical principle goes away because of Christ and what he has done. Reformed Baptists appeal to Genesis 17 in the full revelation of Scripture, um, and they recognize Israel as a nation and the genealogical principle for covenant inclusion and the land are all promises and types that find fulfillment in Christ in the kingdom of God. Okay? So the Reformed Baptist says, listen, we're like the Presbyterians, except we're just not stuck in transition. It's like you just got to find fulfillment here. Can't find this, the, 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 too much, the, the, our Presbyterian friends have too much kind of hanging back in the Old Testament that gets smuggled in. Um, let me just say this. I'm going to read this because I wrote it very carefully. In terms of how these things come to fulfillment, Baptists affirm the necessity of household baptism, particularly of infants on the basis of the head of the household, and that God's primary operative unit is still the family. Okay, Baptists affirm household baptism, particularly of infants, on the basis of the head of household. Now, if you're like, Tyler, you, what are you doing? That's because they believe that those who enter the household of God, Ephesians 2.19, by being born from above, John 3, 3 and 4, are entitled to receive the covenant sign, Matthew 28, without delay as infants in Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.1, and children adopted into the family of God, Romans 8.15-17, following the example and command of Christ, Matthew 3, who's the head of the household, Ephesians 5.23. It is a fulfillment. It is a fulfillment of household. There is now a new household, a new family. Similarly, those who are Abraham's seed should receive the sign. Um, it's just like, unlike in the Old Testament, who counts as Abraham's seed 
is different. And again, again according to Galatians 3.29, those who are in Christ are Abraham's seed. So that suggesting that spiritual seeds of Abraham, those of us who are in Christ, can produce a physical seed that is on that basis entitled to the sign uh, seems to have gone taken a misstep somewhere. Okay? Okay. That is... Um, that, that, is the, that is the final thing that I have to say. I want to wrap that up, and I'm going to move into the Lord's Supper. But I want to pause and ask any questions, any questions about what we have, what we have discussed and what I've tried to, uh, how I've tried to tie things together here. Okay. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah. So we haven't talked. Yeah. So we haven't talked. We did talk about that. Yeah. We talked about uh, we talked about it briefly. The difference between immersion and effusion. Uh, we'll talk. We'll probably talk about that a little bit more. Um, but I think it will probably be. Yeah. I don't know if we'll talk about that uh, much more. Well, I'll, I'll talk about it now. Just give, I'll, I'll, I'll briefly. I'll just briefly talk about it now. Just because I don't know. For some reason, I thought I, it was going to be coming down the pipe, but I don't think it is. Um, let me just talk briefly about that. So, since the, since the earliest times, the, the 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 type of baptism that has been accepted by the church, even those for the first at least thousand twelve hundred years, even up to the time of Thomas Aquinas, the mode of baptism that has been the dominant mode has been immersion, even of infants, even of infants, immersion. Um, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, I mentioned this. This is part of where, I'm, where, where we talked about this. Um, you can go watch videos on YouTube, and I did, just to check, because I heard it, I couldn't believe it. The, the immersion of uh, infants that they do, the triple immersion, Trinitarian immersion, putting them down, and it's, uh, it's crazy. I mean, it's bizarre. You sit there, and they're like, oh, my goodness, is, are they okay? But... Um, but immersion has been the primary means of baptism. Um, sprinkling is still going. What I would say about uh, effusion or pouring, right? Uh, I would say that if someone were baptized uh, as a believer via a, uh, through effusion, as a, as opposed to uh, the, of course, the rich symbolism of being buried with Christ under the waters and baptism was raised. Um, I, I would say that that's one of those cases where a broken ankle is still an ankle. Okay, I would say that I'm not going to squibble about how much water got used. And if the Philippian jailer was baptized, like in the mill, I mean, there are some examples where, or, or, or someone who's deathly afraid of water, or someone who's on their deathbed who can't be immersed. I mean, for any reasons, uh, I, I'm, I'm willing to say that that, that pouring, that effusion, um, is certainly. Uh, provided it's done to a believer, is something that I would not be like, oh no, you got to redo that or something, like that, uh, something like that. But certainly immersion, and that's the I think that's the part that a lot of people miss. It is true that infant baptism, after about the mid third century, uh, late third uh, or early fourth century, becomes um, the normal practice uh, after if, after about three hundred years. Uh, but it still is that there is still the idea of immersion. You still have the idea of immersion of, of adults and uh, and of and of children. So immersion certainly seems to be what we see in Scripture. It certainly seems certainly seems to be 
John the Baptist is doing. It's the witness of the early church. Um, and so that's why Baptists stand pretty firmly on uh, that mode of um, that mode of baptism as opposed to the pouring. Okay. So I want to trans. And by the way, thank you. I understand that whenever I was talking with uh, Shanti about this the other day, uh, you know, whenever you deep dive into something that is theologically rich or philosophically rich, you know you're going to kind of have some people whose eyes roll back in their head and there's kind of wait till it's over. So I really appreciate those of you who stuck with me through some of this stuff. Uh, I, so I did want to get, I, I did want to teach on it and I did want to, uh, particularly because I have so many people who have come out of the PCA and uh, uh, rush shoulders with so many good brothers and sisters in the PCA um, and maybe other Reformed paedo-baptistic denominations that I want to teach on it. I want to have this so I can reference back to so I don't have to do this again. And I wanted to be fairly fairly exhaustive about it, although it hasn't been 100%. There's always something more that could be said. So thank you for sticking with me. Uh, the next the next, the next uh, sections here on the Lord's Supper will not be nearly as, uh, as, as technical in some of these ex- uh, respects. And then we will step into our next Sunday School series, which is actually defending, articulating and defending the doctrines of grace. This is a basics. It's a back to basics. What are the doctrines of grace or so-called the five points of Calvinism? Something that we, I think, probably intentionally uh, don't sit and, 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 and teach on over and over and over. Uh, and yet, nevertheless, uh, we want to go through the parts of the 1689 um, that, that speak to these doctrines uh, in terms of what it means to be reformed. And so if you have, and, there, and by the way, I have to say that there are a lot of bad arguments for Reformed theology. I've heard them. I've heard so many arguments whose conclusions I agree with, but the arguments are terrible. And so it's, it's, you need to have good arguments for good conclusions and not just good conclusions from sloppy reasoning. And so we want to go through and say, uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I will, I'm going to shoot down some arguments that are made for some of these positions that are just lame. Okay, uh, I don't think they hold water at all. And if I was approaching the view, I would not be persuaded by some of the some of the things that I'm going to suggest. Uh, but then I want to take us to Scripture, where Scripture says, "No, here's why. Here's why these things are certainly true. Here's why man is depraved and is not going to seek God." Um, after we initially say, "Okay, here's some reasons that actually are not," uh, they, they get to that conclusion, but not in the right way. So if you would, if you have your copy of the scripture, turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, you will no doubt recall, gives us the Passover. And so as we start our study of the Lord's Supper, I want to situate us with a biblical theological shape. And I'm hoping to get through this part today, but I don't want to rush it. So, of course, after the plagues, we have a final plague threatened there in chapter 11. And then we have the Passover. And and, and what they are instructed to do is they are to take a lamb without blemish. uh, And they are to... uh, um, they're supposed to kill the lambs at twilight. That's verse 6. And then they shall, verse 7, take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel 
of the houses in which they eat. That's kind of, that, that, that is to say the parts that go down on the door and then the part that's over the door. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, which is great. The Bible knows how to make food taste good. Okay, You roast meat, folks. You don't boil it. Come on. Come on. There's someone in here who boils hot dogs. Okay? <laughs> so, yeah, we're not going to eat it raw, not boiled, but roasted. Its head uh, and its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. And in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. Why is that? It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And let me just pause and say, all the gods of Egypt, what, when you give a critical look to the plagues and this incredible story that plays out, you do have Pharaoh himself who is cast as a god, and there's all these other demigods, and it's the gods versus God. That's why he says that here. Okay, It is... Uh, the gods of Egypt versus the only God that there actually is. And so he says, I'm going to do these things to triumph over them. Um, the blood shall be a sign for you, critically, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, which, by the way, is going to come in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You're going to have a Passover that is part of that feast, but that's only one part of the feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. There you go. And the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On that day you shall hold assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month that evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month that evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened, and in all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Okay. So... The, the both because of what has come before it and what will come after it, the Passover is uh, appropriately, it, has, it, it, it becomes the defining corporate meal for the people of Israel, particularly because the Exodus is the central delivering event in the Old Testament. The people who are called out of Egypt over and over and over, even hundreds of years after that happens, it is referred to as the God who brought you out of Egypt. Egypt. And when we fast forward to the gospel, we'll see the Last Supper is in fact a celebration of the Passover meal. 
Now there is, we're not going to spend, I'm not going to spend any time on it because you just got to pick some things to leave out. But there are some scholars, some good, real good folks who do not think that it was actually a Passover meal. They think it was one of the meals eaten, just a meal, during seven days of unleavened bread. I mean, you just, like any festival, you would eat meals, right? But it wasn't the Passover meal. It was a meal during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but it wasn't actually Passover. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that there are people who think that only to say there's good reason to believe that's not true. And now I'm not going to say anything else about it. But it, because it was, is in fact a Passover meal, and evidence of that are things like when the Gospels say it was a Passover meal. Those are strong arguments, it seems to me. Okay, there are when you try to harmonize John, the 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 biggest the, the one real problem is trying to harmonize some of the things John says about the timing of it with some of the things the Synoptic Gospels say. There are some timing like challenges about when it was eaten and on what day, and and so uh, the the people who are far more astute than I am uh, sort that, can sort that out. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger, if you're interested, sorts that out very well uh, in the in the uh, the NAC Bible and Theology book on the Lord's Supper. It's got an incredibly technical section on how it, the Passover it is a, in fact a Passover meal. Okay, but but here's the point: it's a Passover meal, and that's the reason that's critical to think it's a Passover meal is because is what Jesus does with it. What Jesus does is critical because he redefines it. He redefines it, he, he fulfills it, and he transforms it in light of being the very lamb that the Passover pointed to. The lamb of God who allows the wrath of God to pass over the people of God. And that is what his blood is going to be poured out for in this new covenant, and he gives us this new meal. Before we jump to that, though, we need to make an intermediate stop in, in a maybe an unexpected place. Turn with me to Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24. I'm just going to read this briefly. Le Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. We're going to get a little tour of the... We're getting a tour of the tabernacle here. A tour of the tabernacle. And here's what we see. It says, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it, that is, loaves of bread. Two tenths of an epith should be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, so that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion and as a food offering to the Lord. Verse 8, every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is, it is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. A perpetual due. And just briefly uh, hop over with me to Numbers. Numbers 4. I want to make some comments here. Numbers 4, you're going to get the duties of a couple subgroups. Uh um, subgroups of Levites. And remember the Kohathites were in charge of the holy things. And we read this in verse 7. And over the table of the bread of the presence, that's what we just read about back in Leviticus 24. Over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall spread a cloth 
of blue and put on it the plates, the dishes for incense, the bowls, the flagons for the drink offering. It's like a pitcher. The regular showbread shall be on it. They shall spread them over a cloth of scarlet and cover them with a covering of goatskin and shall put in its poles. So the idea is that when you walk into the tabernacle, there is a table that is beautiful. And on that table, there is wine for a drink offering. And then there is bread. There's bread and wine right there in the context of right before, right outside the Holy of Holies, okay? Right outside where the presence of God is, right where the priests are conducting sacrifices. Now, the priests, I, I think there is good reason to believe, there are good arguments to believe that while the priests ate the bread, they didn't drink the wine, okay? Because there's, there, there's a couple places where it suggests, or one place where it suggests explicitly that they are not supposed to drink wine on duty. And second, it says the entire drink offering is poured out because the entire drink offering is offered, meaning there wouldn't be any left over, okay? The, op- the opposite is not said about uh, the bread. But when you put the pieces together in the New Testament, this compelling sketch emerges, and here's where it is. You have the, the bread of life, and this is, put, this, is put, this is a patchwork biblical theology that I'm about to, to tease out here, and I'm not willing to stake my life on it. This is just a sketch, Okay. What you have is you have the bread of life who comes down from heaven out of the heavenly tabernacle. The heavenly tabernacle of which the actual Hebrew says the tabernacle that Moses made was uh, made after the, this model of this heavenly tabernacle. The bread of life comes down to earth and a kingdom of priests is instructed to eat of his body and drink of his blood, John 6 while holding out bread and wine themselves as they remember the presence and work of God, who, who in his death sets himself apart of the high priest forever, and who has, Hebrews 10, opened up the curtain that formerly separated the priests uh, and, and the bread and the wine from the presence, from the presence of God. Um, to be sure, I don't think Scripture gives us much more than a whisper here. I don't think it gives us more than a whisper you have bread and wine in the context of the presence of God and sacrifice. And when you sac- fast forward to Jesus, the bread of life, who makes the sacrifice, it makes the veil that was there go up. And so in the covenant meal, we, don't, we, eat, in, we eat within the veil, so to speak, because we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. That is a stitched together, like, that is a stitched together theology. I get it, but I think it's a whisper. I don't think we can make a ton of it, but it is worth pointing out that bread and wine in the context of the presence of God, covenant, and sacrifice are present in the tabernacle. Okay? Present in the tabernacle. Although certainly uh, the primary thing we're going to look at is how it fulfills and develops the Passover. Well, turn with me to John 6. I'm on, I think I'm on time here. Turn with me to John chapter 6. You know, just when Jesus' crowds got a little bit too big, just when the disciples, you have to imagine, were thinking, man, this is really something. We really got something going on. Jesus pulls out his old, eat my, drink my blood and eat my flesh speech, and people run for the hills. Um, it is this language that from the early church, that in the early church, they thought, I mean, there were, uh, from the outside, reports that... that uh, uh, that Christians were engaging in cannibalism. 
Christians were engaging. And in, in, uh, in fact, one account that I read, an ancient account, said there was a there's a small child, and he's a uh, like it's tarred up or something. And uh, they kill this child and they eat it. And this is the tradition of the Christians who eat the blood and drink. It's just like, what on earth are they talking about? But that's what happens. <laughs> that's what happens when you're when you have a pagan worldview and try to understand the the Christian faith from the outside in the first century when the canon isn't collated and all the rest. But this language of eating my blood and drinking my uh, eating my blood, excuse me, eating my my body uh, and, and drinking my blood, eating my flesh, drinking my blood. Uh, has has been the occasion for a ton of controversy throughout church history. And we'll talk about that hopefully next time when we go through some of the views. But anyways, in John chapter 6, Jesus makes some incredible, uh, some incredible statements here. Let me start in verse 25. He says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you're not coming here. For, you're coming here for food. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then when they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, excuse me, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? <laughs> what works do you perform? Which is supposed to be like, you're kidding, right? After you've read John up to this point and the persons are coming because of the bread. Like, what, what do you mean, what signs? I guess you want something more, right? And what sign do you do that we may see and believe? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. This is God taking care of his people in the wilderness with manna, bread from heaven. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread for heaven, from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Now I want to skip down. You talk about, he's, he's talking about, he's, uh, they continue to discuss him coming down from heaven uh, the Jews are grumbling about that. How can he come down from heaven? Isn't this the son of Joseph? Like, what is this guy even talking about? And we pick up in verse 52. It says, The Jews then disputed among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Um, so here's what Jesus does here. I, I certainly, it, unless you're a Catholic reading this, unless you're a Catholic reading this, it seems fairly obvious that what Jesus is not asking, is that, in other words, that it's, what seems obvious is that the Jews misunderstood what he was saying. 
It wasn't asking anyone to literally eat his flesh. In other words, he was using one of the, uh, just like other many beautiful images that he uses in John, to talk about how to have abiding life in Christ is not physically eating his flesh any more than his flesh was actually physical bread, that Jesus was bread man walking around on the earth. That's not it. That's not what he's saying. Jesus wasn't bread man. Okay, He wasn't saying that he was bread. He wasn't saying that people were to cannibalize him. What he was doing is he was drawing on something that God had done in the past. Manna that came down from heaven to provide for the people and be nourishing and give them life. He is making a biblical, he is drawing a biblical theological arc back to that and said, hey, you know how God provided for his people in this way? It wasn't Moses. Don't get it twisted. It wasn't Moses. It was God who sent the bread from heaven. And guess what? I, I am the bread from heaven. I am the one who has come to nourish the people. I am the one who has come. I am the one that you are to be dependent on. And in me, you will find life. In me, you will find food, after, after which consuming, so to speak, you will not be hungry. Um, and that is why they say in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. You know, We want this bread. And, and, and of course, as the Gospels are teased out, and certainly the rest of the, the, the New Testament, uh, we learn that how, to, how do we feast and feed on Christ? Again, certainly not cannibalism, and certainly not what I would consider sacramental—certainly not sacramentalism, where the blood and wine, excuse me, the uh, bread and wine turn into the physical body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, and then they're consumed as a sacrifice, which is the Roman Catholic view. Um, instead, through repentance and faith, by being born from above, John three, by turning from our sins and repenting. Uh, uh, repenting of them, embracing Jesus, that is how we feast on Christ. That is how we take part of this bread who has come down from heaven and are provided for by God. Okay, so I didn't get to the Last Supper, but that's fine. There's a good, that's a great setup. Oh, I didn't do my points either. Not that it, it probably anyone cared. Uh, the, this is a great setup. Next time, we will come back and we will actually get to the Last Supper and see how the Passover how what Jesus does at the Passover to define a new covenant meal, uh, the Lord's Supper, okay? Uh, and then we will talk about some of the different understandings of the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about the Catholic understanding briefly, talk about the Lutheran understanding, talk about Reformed understanding, uh, and, and then we'll talk about some practical issues about supper. Can you, you, know, can you take the supper uh, with Kool-Aid and Cheetos if you're in a foreign context? I mean, who... What, how, how far can you stretch these elements? We'll ask some practical questions um, about the Lord's Supper. Uh, why, why we celebrate it weekly as opposed to monthly? Uh, does the Bible say anything about frequency? How, the, how, the, how it started in the context of a larger meal in the early church? We'll talk about some of those practical things to wrap up after we look at some of those views. So thank you for your attention. Let's pray just once more, please. God, um, thank you for giving us thank you for giving us a covenant meal. Thank you for um, loving us enough to send Jesus to die and ministering to us through rich symbol and through um, something that pierces our hearts that is a means of grace to us um, in the Lord's table. And so we, we pray that you would prepare our hearts even today to partake in that table and that our next uh, hour would be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen.